Today's message is going to be slightly different in the sense that uh, when we go through Revelation, we're always waiting for the freaky stuff, right? Where's the creepy, psycho imagery, things like that? Well, today goes back to a very practical um, hard-hitting message where it's straight-out uh, conviction, talking about lifestyle, talking about um, our love for Christ. And so it's really going to kind of hit at the heart of maybe where you're at or maybe something that you are wrestling with. So I would hope that your heart is certainly open. You're not just have your mind open today to look for information, but I would hope that your heart is open to learn a little bit from the Holy Spirit to speak to you. So I want to encourage you on this. Um, I always want you to have the freedom that when you come to church here, that as I'm preaching, if God all of a sudden draws your attention to something, let's say I'm preaching along and I hit on something that makes you think of something else and you say, you know what, I really want to dwell on that. I want to kind of think that through. Block me out for the next number of minutes. Just completely engage with God. Sit me on the shelf. Let me keep talking. I never shut up, so it doesn't matter. I'm going to still go on. You just block me out and get focused on the Lord. Make it your personal time with God where you all of a sudden say, Lord, I want you to tell me more about what you just hit my heart on as opposed to saying I got to get all the information because really the best part uh, about church sometimes is when God has a private date with you is where he gets your attention on something and then the whole rest of the time you have no idea what I said. You just move on with what God is trying to tell you because there may be one small element that's a tiny part of my preparation that's a huge deal between you and the Lord. So I would always encourage you to go ahead and shove the message aside for a moment and really engage with God. Now, as we get started, I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank because I don't want you to miss today's overarching principle, the, the major issue that I think that is at hand. Um, we need to understand that Christianity flows in a certain direction and it always begins with love and then it goes to producing good things or doing things for God. You cannot reverse that order. So the fill in the blank in front of you is this. All the works in the world. And what I mean by works is good deeds, good stuff that you do, ministry, all that kind of stuff. All the works in the world can't make up for a vibrant love relationship. All the works in the world cannot make up for a vibrant love relationship with God. Christianity, in its essence, in its totality, is love-based. Love concept thrives in love, moves in love, operates in love. Without love, it actually all falls apart. If you do not have a love relationship with Jesus Christ, it is no longer an effective faith. We've learned throughout every time we study scripture that the one indicator whether or not we will have eternal life is whether or not we have an engaging love relationship with Jesus Christ. He said very clearly, I am the way, the truth and the life. I'm your life. You're not going to have any life other than me. He said, no man comes to the father, but by me. You're not going to do good stuff and get to heaven. That's not going to fly. That's not biblical Christianity. You cannot do a bunch of works and try to figure out if you've done more good stuff than bad stuff. That's not biblical Christianity. You cannot operate and say, if I am holy or good in these regards, then God must allow me to go into heaven. No. 
you only have one reason that you gain entrance into heaven. And that is that in a love relationship, you are fused with Jesus. And that new corporation that is created, that new relationship, the new entity, kind of like when you get married, you fuse together. And then in the state's eyes, they see whatever one partner does, it affects the other partner. Think about that uh, monetarily. If you have debts or if you have assets, you become one entity and you're both held accountable for the same things. In the same way, when you fuse together with Jesus Christ, you are a new entity that entity is the only reason you have entrance into heaven the love relationship with jesus is primary every time but somehow some way we allow ourselves to drop into a lesser form called sin management right everything's about whether or not we have more or less sin and we feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves based on whether or not we're doing more good stuff or less good stuff that's not christianity it's an aspect of relationship and stuff you got to monitor sure but that's not the point that's not what it's all about and then all of a sudden we get into this other mindset where we go on autopilot as long as we're doing stuff for god we never seem to sit back and consider whether or not our heart is engaged with god doing for god is not the same as being with god those are drastically different things and i have to be honest with you that me personally by my very career choice right as a pastor this is something I struggle with all the time. Why? Because here's how it works to be a pastor. When you may have some rough times with the Lord and you feel like you go on autopilot, you have a personal responsibility to go, gosh, I don't feel really good about that. I don't get to just step away from the pulpit. I don't get to just disappear from the church for a while. I have to work through all my hardships. I have to work through all my times I'm distant and cold towards God and have a hard heart. As a matter of fact, all the pastors end up doing that because if they didn't, they'd be hopping in and out of the church at all times, just like everybody else. But we end up staying in there and then we lull ourselves to sleep by believing that because we're doing so much stuff for God, we're preaching, we're counseling, we're loving on that because we're doing so much stuff for God, that we're cool. We're not. We're not. All of a sudden you can sit there and after months turn around and go, the heck have I been doing for the last six months? I haven't even been engaged with the Lord at all. Where'd the love go? There's no love here. I'm just moving on doing what I'm supposed to do. I got a whole calendar full of material I'm supposed to accomplish. I still have to preach every week. But it's my job to go back and check and see whether or not my heart's engaged. Whether or not I'm alive and vibrant with Jesus Christ. But do you understand that it's not just you that struggle with it. I'm doing it too. It's just I have a lifestyle that forces me to keep going. That can be dangerous. So I want to say that when we look at this stuff and we begin to hear the Lord's words. To especially the church of Ephesus. We got to do some heart examination. Because it's just not okay to disconnect from God. Everything that you do for God when disconnected from God is really pointless. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the 
branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What he's trying to say is you're going to go out and everybody else is going to see you do a bunch of stuff, but ultimately of value, it's not going to matter. You don't have any change from it. You don't have any growth from it. I will use the stuff that you do and I will continue to minister to other people because I'm always ministering to them. But that just because your ministry is effective doesn't mean that God is pleased. And I think those are some things that we need to be challenged with. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It's page 867. In the Bibles that are handed to you, it's the last book of the Bible that makes it easy to find. Go all the way to the end, back up a little bit until you find a big two, little one. All right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. As we begin this, let me just give you a, a, a little bit of background on some of these things. We are about to engage with the letters from Jesus. This is the only book that includes the personal kind of handwritten letters of Jesus. Um, John is merely writing them down like a secretary. You'd say, well, all the Bible is God breathed. I completely agree with you. However, it just has a slightly different tone because normally God operates through the author and they can put in their own groove to it. This one is straight out of Jesus's mouth. He writes seven letters to seven churches. Why seven? We talked about that last week. If you missed that, you can always grab the podcast or a free CD or whatever. But when we have these churches, we engage with these brand new letters and we start going, well, I don't know if I'm going to get all this. There's seven letters. What am I going to am I going to track with it? Yes, they're all the same. They follow the same format every time. Why? So it's easier to understand. They're very similar to the ancient edicts of kings. When they would write out to their subjects, they'd say, you're doing this really good, and this is the stuff you've got to work on, and here's your challenge. In the same way, each one of these seven letters starts out by the, the same exact way. It's just like the ancient letters. It starts out with, a, hey, I'm writing you a letter. This is who I am. I'm writing it to your city. I'm writing it to this church. Let me tell you some good stuff let me tell you some bad stuff and leave you with a challenge every one of them goes through that same pattern the only time it changes is when the content of the message changes here's what i mean out of all seven letters they're kind of like report cards for churches that's it you're getting the little marks and whenever you get uh, a report card as a child i would always look at it and try to look at the worst stuff first i don't know why I'd immediately go, uh, you know, if everything else was good, what did I do bad, right? So, well, in the same way, I imagine the churches are like, just hurry up and get to the part where I get busted, right? Well, seven churches, five of them get bad marks. Two of them are the only churches that don't have any bad marks, where all God has is good news for them. But a lot of them, it's good news and bad news. And all of them begin with the same pattern where Jesus said, the one writing to you is me, and I'm going to use a part of the picture I gave you last week. When Remember, John saw Jesus and this amazing, his eyes were like blazing fire and his feet were like bronze that had just come out of the furnace. You remember all those pictures? He uses one slice of those for each church and says, you remember me? I'm God. I'm the one that you just saw. I'm the one talking to you. This is not about John. This is about me now. And I'm telling you something. So these are the personal words of Jesus. Well, when he talks to each church, he refers to them in a very symbolic way, and he represented them as what? Lampstands. Remember that? That was the picture. Why a lampstand? We talked about it. Well, because lampstands do what? They give off light. Jesus is the 
light of the world. And so our job as a church is to promote him to the world, to light up a dark place. Is that correct? So what he does is he warns them. You are here for a purpose. Your job is to promote me to the world. If you cease to function in that way, do you understand I will not be a part of that? You are here for a very particular reason. So do what you're called and built to do. So I got to ask you this. This is where I personally have to get uh, challenged. Uh, is Bridgeway a light to the community? This is what we have to ask. Is God's word being promoted clearly here? Is God's worship being lifted up here? This is what you must ask yourselves at all times when you attend here and call this your family. Are we making a difference in the community in a number of ways? But primarily, are we confessing Jesus Christ to the world? I believe that we are currently and we need to continue to do so. If we don't, why in the world are we here? Does that make sense? All right, let's move on. Let's pray for the word. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes that we might see what it is that you want us to learn, what you want us to hear, and what we may transform by knowing. And so, Lord, I just pray that it would be a place of soft hearts, that we would hear it even though it stings. And, Lord, that we might be able to engage with you in a different way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Page 867, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read the whole letter to Ephesus. We're only doing two of the seven today. Oops, I just ripped my Bible apart and took out the book of Revelation. Well, that was effective. <laughs> Anybody want chapter 1? That's on this, this side. Chapter 2 is right over here. All right. Don't do this with your Bibles, I just found out. Okay, here we go. Now, we're going to do two of these seven letters. It's Ephesus and Smyrna. I didn't make up the names. I know they're lame. So we just kind of move forward. Let's read Ephesus first, all right? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Right there, I went, man, we're awesome. We're the best church ever, right? And as a pastor, I would have been really proud of my church, right? Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Fatal flaw. Big problem. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, there you go. There's a letter just thrown out there. And you say, Lance, I can understand that. Can we just move on? All right. No, no, because I need a job. So I'm going to make it sound really technical. Okay. Let's go through this and tear it apart for a moment, because I think there's some things that we're going to miss. We certainly need to camp on a couple areas. We begin with 
the start to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Remember, we talked about what the angel was last week. You can dive into that a little bit more. But when it says to the church of Ephesus, you got to know what Ephesus is. Otherwise, it kind of makes it a lousy letter. So what do we know about Ephesus? Well, we know quite a bit. As a matter of fact, we probably know more about Ephesus than any of these churches. As a matter of fact, I even had the opportunity to go over there and see the archaeological remains, which in my opinion are the best ones out of all the seven churches. It's pretty awesome. Huge facade of one of the largest libraries at the time, and there's all these houses they're excavating of all the wealthy people, and you begin to see the mosaics on the wall. I mean, it's just an incredible place to walk around. And to see that, it's pretty funny, I could have showed you some of my video footage, but it was like when you're walking around and the camera keeps bouncing around, it was kind of one of those, and you guys would just all get sick and start throwing up, so that's probably not the best idea. So what do we know about the city of Ephesus? Well, practically speaking, Ephesus was incredibly large, influential, and wealthy for some primary reasons. At the time of Revelation, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the whole Roman Empire. You got Rome, Alexandria, Antioch of Syria, then Ephesus. I mean, that's a pretty big deal in a rather large empire. This is a huge city. Estimate of population between 250,000 and 500,000 at the time of John. So it kind of moves around, but still, it's a pretty decent sized city. It was the practical capital of Asia. Now, it's not the capital the capital is actually pergamum which actually gets a letter as well they were the official capital of the roman province of asia but because the governor would always come in and hang out in ephesus and try the important cases and do a bunch of government work there it's practically the capital of the province of asia it was very very influential it was a big deal to rome it had the largest harbor in all of asia minor so when you would come in, in a culture where most of your trade came from other nations via boat, whoever had the biggest harbor was the biggest deal. So Because everybody had to go through. You're the gateway to Asia. So that's why they had so much wealth and so much trade. They had the largest harbor. Now, the other couple things that you need to know is that it's a free city. There were certain Roman cities that were free and certain ones that were not. And it basically meant two things. If you were a free city, you had relative right to govern yourself. They didn't micromanage you. You kind of had some freedom. The second thing is they wouldn't put Roman troops there. They would put Roman troops in the cities to leave them as kind of like a police force. They had no need of a police force because they were a solid Roman city. Well, we also realized they were super popular for another reason. Every year they held the Pan-Ionian Games. The Pan-Ionian Games were second only to the Olympics. Huge deal, and they were handled every year. So people would flock from all over the known world to come to these games. And as a matter of fact, when you hear Paul talk about things like, I wrestle or I strain or I run a race, he's not usually referring to the Olympics. He's referring to the Pan-Ionian games. This was the most famous games in the area. Now, as far as religious stuff goes... They were famous, even though they had temples to everybody. It was temples to this god and this goddess and everything else. They were largely famous for worship towards one particular goddess. Her name was Artemis. Or the Romans called her Diana. Nasty looking woman. Right? You're going to go, well, that's rude. Not really. Not when you hear her description. 
The way that she's pictured, and as a matter of fact, when I was in Ephesus, I bought one of her little statues, right? Which kind of freaks me out that it's in my office, because then I'm sure now i got some weird pagan goddess in my office. But anyway, if it just explodes one day, I'll know why. But I bought one because I wanted to have a visual representation to go, really? They were totally into this girl? Okay, what does she look like? She is a lady that's kind of standing like this, has a funky hat, and she has bumps all over her body from about here up. What are all the bumps? you got two choices. You got, she is known as the many-breasted one. So either she has a whole bunch of breasts all over her body, or the other one that the ancient world called it was, they were all bull testicles. Okay, either way, gross, is all I'm saying. That was their main goddess. It's like, wow, she's our girl, right? And you're like, no, ew, I don't like her. She's a goddess of fertility. That's what it's all about. When you engage in the worship of a goddess of fertility, guess what's going to be involved? Sex. It's just the way it goes. Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how big of a deal it was. Everybody knew this temple. It was on a platform of 100,000 square feet. This is a massive temple. 425 feet long. 225 feet wide, 55 foot tall columns made out of pure marble, each one donated by a different king. It had a roof portico over the top where they could hang out. A lot of it was open air. If you think about Athens and the Parthenon uh, uh, on the Acropolis up there, it's bigger than that. It was just a massive, huge thing. And it was really attractive to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. It had a very bizarre uh, use. On one hand, it held one of the most important banks of the known world because they believed the temple to be such a big deal that it was holy and set aside and nobody could steal stuff from it. On the other hand, it was asylum for criminals. Who's the genius that put those two together? Right? An asylum is that if you're in trouble and you're being chased by the cops or anybody else, you can run and it's home base. As long as you can tag, right? As long as you can tag that place, they can't take you anymore. They can't bust you. So a bunch of creepy people hung out there. Well, in addition to that, whenever they would do worship, they had thousands of temple prostitutes. Why? Because if you're going to worship the goddess of fertility, it involves sex. You've got to have sex with somebody so they would get paid. So all the ladies would hang out. Thousands of them would hang out. So the guys would go, and you can imagine, when prostitution is your primary religion, things are a little bit backwards, right? It's just a rough environment. This is Ephesus. This is a city where this little church is growing up and trying to grow and learn. They're trying to sort out Jesus Christ. Well, today, Ephesus is no longer a city. As I told you, it's archaeological ruins. It's completely devastated. Why? One primary reason. Remember the amazing, incredible harbor that gave it all its wealth? There was a problem with it. It was off the Caister River, and as the Caister River would wash downward, it would wash silt down. Everybody familiar with what silt is? Silt are the little tiny particles and stuff. It's like sand that would get washed down from the rocks and the dirt up above. But the harbor would create an eddy, so it would all silt in and begin to build up the harbor and make it shallow, and the boats couldn't get in. So they were constantly fighting a battle to dig it out and excavate it out all the time. They eventually lost that war. It's silted up, and now when you go over to Ephesus, there's not one harbor in sight. It's now six miles inland. And the only thing that exists from the wonder of the world is one little pillar sticking out of a marsh vacant field. That's it. 
All done. This is the church. There's one other major element that we need to understand. It's the church in Ephesus was a big deal. The church was first planted there, not by Paul, but by his friends. They're very famous to us in the book of Acts. It was a husband and wife team by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila was a guy. All right. Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, they worked in the same trade as Paul, as tent makers. They moved into that territory and they broke new ground in this very wicked, messed up city. They started the ministry there and they were soon joined by one of the greatest preachers of the early world. His name was Apollos. They ended up teaming together and they launched an incredible ministry so that by the time that Paul entered in there, he came in his second missionary journey. And he came through and met a bunch of the people, kind of fell in love with them. But he didn't really get going until his third missionary journey. When he comes in in his third missionary journey, he stops and he stays there for three years. He stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city on record. This was his place. And that three years was tumultuous. It was a crazy time. First, it starts out totally normal. He comes into town, runs into some John the Baptist followers, tells them a little bit about Jesus. They have this great little revival. Everything's awesome. And then everything goes nuts. Not because of Paul, because God was stirring up the city. There were men traveling around. Orthodox Jews, perhaps pagans, perhaps they're running around performing exorcisms. Everybody know what exorcisms are? It's not like exercise. That's different. Okay. You don't do a spin class with demons, right? So exorcism is all about casting demons out. So these seven guys, the seven sons of Sceva, they all come in. Maybe they're all brothers. They're moving around town trying to kick out demons. The problem is they're not Christians. They're not believers. You don't mess with demons when you don't have Jesus. Are we all clear on that? So sure enough, they go up and they want to cast this demon out of this guy. Well, they ran into the wrong demon. So they said, and this is their common way of kicking demons out, I command you to come out in the name of Christ whom Paul preaches. What did the demons say? I know Paul. I know Jesus. Who are you again? The man then, in the power of the demon, tore him apart. Physically. Ripped him to shred. It said they all left naked and bleeding. Tore off all their clothes, beat the living daylights out of them. These guys were just demolished. Well, that gets out. Word gets out, right? That's going to be pretty popular in the city when you find out that a demon just beat up seven guys. Now everybody in the city freaks out. Oh my gosh, God must be real. Now we have Satan. That's why Satan doesn't like to show himself a whole lot because it causes a stir. He just would rather go underneath and make it look like there's no such thing as a God or Satan. So he's got to keep it quiet. So he starts this massive movement in the city. Everyone starts freaking out. They're looking at their bookshelf going, man, I'm totally into witchcraft too. I wonder if that would happen to me. And oh no. And everyone starts panicking. Well, they're all asking Paul, what should I do? He's like, burn it. Get the stuff out of there. So they all start grabbing their magical books and their parchments and their scrolls. And they all start throwing them on this massive bonfire. And all of a sudden, they're burning everything up. There's a massive revival. Everyone's excited and they're fired up. It said that the value of all that was burned was 50,000 drachmas or 50,000 pieces of silver, which was a day's wages. So let's just estimate this real quick. Let's say, on a very conservative side, that um, you calculated out 100 bucks a day, right? And it began to do a bunch of different things. Well, it comes out to 5 million bucks. This city, that's only the people that responded. So this city was really entrenched in witchcraft. 
Sure enough, that causes a stir. Now everybody hates Paul. Why? Because the temple, the seven wonder of the world, was a big revenue producer. All those little statues, like what I bought, that's how they funded their plays. They were really into that. They were really into the magic arts. And when you start messing with their religion, you're taking away their money. They didn't care whether people worshipped Artemis or not, practically speaking. They just wanted their cash. And when you mess with their revenue, they have a problem with you. So they launch a massive riot, all started by a guy named Demetrius the Metalsmith. He comes out, Paul's ruining everything, everyone's going to take down Artemis, the goddess, don't you want to defend her? So they had this huge riot in their theater, they were trying to tear apart Paul's buddies, they're trying to get at Paul, he ends up having to flee, it's this big huge drama. Ultimately he had to leave the city. He left the city in charge by his protege, a young man by the name of Timothy. When you read First and Second Timothy in the Bible, he's the new pastor of Ephesus. So it's this young guy that now has to run the show. Well, tradition tells us that Timothy was murdered by the Romans and leadership was handed over to another big dog, John, the author of this book. It is believed that he was likely the pastor of the church when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. That means this first letter that comes out is very personal, right? That's his church tradition then tells us that he was released from exile under the emperor nerva went back to ephesus and finished out being the bishop of that city remember that's where he took care of mary jesus mom they lived in ephesus this is his hometown so when we're talking about ephesus john takes it very very personally all right there's all your background let's dive into the letter and see what god has for us to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, these are the words of him who Jesus Christ, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The stars we were already told stand for the angels of the seven churches and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Last time he was standing among the seven golden lampstands. Now he's walking. What's the difference between the two? One is encouraging because he's amongst his churches and he's dwelling with them, but now he's walking around in an examination. He is involved and active and alive in everything that was going on within that church. He is walking among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your deeds. That word know is going to be used in every letter. He said, I know what I'm talking about. There's two words that you can use for know in the Greek language that are most common, oida and gnosko. Gnosko means I've learned about you through experience. We hang out a lot. I've gotten to know you. I'm learning about you. That's not the word here. This word is oida. Oida means I know you fully in one fell swoop. I know everything about you. He said, I know your good deeds. In other words, I know the ministry you're doing. I know that you're out there producing for the kingdom of God. I get that. I know your deeds, what you're doing for me. I know your hard work. That word is kapos in Greek. It suggests a task that takes everything that a man has. In other words, physically, emotionally, mentally spent Whatever takes everything out of you, that task is kapos. 
He said, I know that you're spent at the end of the day. I know that you've poured out everything and left it all on the mat. I know the good stuff you do. I know how hard you work. And then he said, and I know your perseverance. Hupomone in Greek. It's not this, oh, woe is me. It's a courageous acceptance and using it to get traction to move forward. This is the whole idea that you're hanging in there and you're using it to your advantage. You're taking all your strength and using it and moving forward. That's what they do. He said, I see all of that. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Interestingly, false teachers show up in four of the seven churches. It was like an epidemic. They're everywhere trying to worm their way in. He said, I know you shut out the false teachers. I know that you're being Bereans. You have found them false, he said. You don't let anybody with bogus doctrine get in. You're not going to let them have the pulpit. That's, there's no way. You've always been strong. Forty years earlier, when Paul ministered in that city around A.D. 53... Paul warned him as he was leaving the city, he said, false wolves are going to come amongst you. False teachers are going to come in here. Don't you dare give them leeway. And they hadn't for 40 years. That's pretty impressive. They were solid doctrinally. They were solid in their works. They were solid in their hard work. They were solid in their endurance. And that's why at this point as a pastor, John must have been beaming. Those are my people. That's us. That's our family. We're doing awesome. And then this line, he says, you have persevered, you have endured hardships for my name, you have not grown weary, you're awesome, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Last night I was reminded that they didn't lose their first love. They forsook their first love. And then, he says, if you don't change, you're done. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how much you endure. I don't care how tough you think you are. I don't care how great your orthodoxy is. I don't care how strong your doctrine is. If you don't love me, what are we doing? We're done here. You have forsaken your first love. There is a common metaphor or analogy that the Bible uses for when someone walks away from God. That analogy is almost what? Almost always what? Adultery. What a weird descriptive word to describe departing from God. Adultery? Why do you got to use a sexual term? Why do you have to use a cheating term? Because that's exactly what it is he said don't you get it you keep setting me aside for someone else i call that cheating i call about the fact that you are dishonest to me that you would rather be with someone other than me the fact that i'm always put on the shelf so you can go about and do your life i'm an extra to you No, that's not okay. As a matter of fact, he went at Israel about this issue so strongly, he had the prophet Hosea do what? Marry a prostitute that would constantly cheat on him over and over and over again, just so he'd go, it's like that. That's how you are. 
Oh, really? Out in church, everybody thinks you're awesome. You keep disappearing from me in your heart. You could shut me off. You don't care about me. There's no love anymore. We're not together. You keep saying all the stuff on the outside. Yeah, my picture's still in your wallet, but you don't ever look at it. You don't care. I mean, you hang out, you go to church, you do all the outside stuff, but no, you're dead inside. You don't love me. You need to change. And he gives them three things to do to change, which is fascinatingly almost the exact same three things I end up counseling couples. They're trying to come back from a loss of love. First thing is what? He said, Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Remember, that's a command. Get your head back into the place where it needs to be. Quit letting your mind go everywhere. You control your thoughts. You can control your feelings. You control your thoughts. You can control your actions. Get your head back in the game. Quit screwing around and letting it go wherever you want or letting Satan manipulate you. No, you remember. In the Old Testament, that is one of the most common commands in the whole Old Testament. Another one is do not be afraid. It's a command. Remember. Try real hard. Get focused. Get your mind back to remembering why we're together in the first place. Why are you a believer? Where did you come from? What is your identity in me? Do you know who I am? You used to be so excited about me. You used to want to tell everybody about me. You used to, oh, I can't wait to go to another Bible study. Can't wait to go to church. Can't wait to read the Bible. It's awesome. This is so exciting. Where did that go? You don't got any passion anymore. Remember what it was like to fall in love with me. Number two, repent. Turn it around. Make the determination in your heart to turn this game around. Get back into the mix on purpose. Don't just drift and see what happens. Nothing's going to happen. Make a determination of your will to get back in there. Repent. And third, do the things you did at first. Date me again. Love me again. Enjoy me again. Laugh with me again. Dream with me again. Get excited again. Stir up your heart. Remember what it was like. Let's do that. And then he warns them. For if you do not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And we will shut this thing down. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. (laughs) The church is like, yay. After you just beat the living daylights out of me, I, okay. Who are the Nicolaitans? We know relatively nothing about them. Uh, tradition says it goes back to Acts chapter 6. If you remember um, when the church was exploding, they started getting too heavy, so the apostles needed to do the work of the word, and they needed to bring in seven guys that were full of wisdom, full of the spirit. That's where we got Stephen from, the first martyr, Christian martyr. Well, one of those guys' names was... Nicholas. So tradition ties these guys to that guy, that he went heretical at some point. One other church father said, no, 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 they just mistook his teaching. Either way, the Nicolaitans became known for people that were encouraging other people to compromise. 
compromise in sexual issues and compromise in matters of idolatry. They were coming into the church and saying, man, we got tons of grace. Don't worry about it. We don't need to cause a big problem with society. Let's just blend. We got to blend. We got to blend. Everything's cool. Don't worry about it. You don't need to be all hardcore Bible thumping. Let's just do this. Let's just work with society. Don't cause a stink. God goes, I hate that. I, I hate what you're doing. And you hate them, I hate them, right on, we're on the same team, that's great. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Holy Spirit is trying to get out a message, and he's like, are you guys listening to this mail? Are you listening, are you learning from their mistakes? To him who overcomes, to him who endures to the end, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Where's the last time you heard the tree of life was? The garden of Eden. Wasn't that the big thing? There was two major trees that were like in the center. There was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat that one. You can eat it, that one. But do you remember when sin entered in, he kicked him out of the garden. He kicked him out of the garden for one primary reason. So they couldn't get back in and take of the tree of life. That was the whole reason why they were kicked out. Otherwise, it wouldn't have mattered. They could have just stayed there. But they couldn't be near the tree of life. Now, what sin had blocked... Christ has made available and you end up finding out in the end it shows up in heaven there's the tree of life again I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God to the angel of the church in Smyrna write this let me grab my broken Bible hold on here's the letter to Smyrna to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's that mean? What's Smyrna? If Ephesus was known for being influential and wealthy, Smyrna was known for its beauty. It was known as either the ornament crown flower of asia it was known as the most beautiful city they wrote on their coins we are the first in size and beauty in all of asia that was written on their coins they were very proud of being the first of beauty they had temples rising up on this hill and it was just beautiful and even though it had been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt the leader lizzie marcus came in and rebuilt it as one of the only planned cities in all the ancient world. He planned it and organized it out in a very specific way with broad, beautiful streets. And the most famous street led from the Temple of Zeus to another temple on the other side of town. And it was famously known as the Street of Gold. Isn't it fascinating that in Revelation we end up seeing that in heaven there's things called the Street of Gold. Very familiar imagery to them. Well... It had the safest harbor, so it was still an area of trade, not as big as Ephesus, but it was a protected inlet. But the one thing that they were known for the most was their extreme loyalty to Rome. 
Even before Rome became the empire that it was, Smyrna was in on it. When the Romans were marching by and they were exhausted and beat up and their clothes were gone, Smyrna took off their own clothes and gave them to the Roman soldiers. They were the first ones to build a temple in honor of Rome and make it a goddess. They were so into Rome. It was this huge deal. In AD 26, they got to compete with all the other cities in the empire, at least in Asia Minor, to being able to build a temple deifying Caesar Tiberius. They won. Why? Because they were so loyal. Everybody in Rome loved Smyrna because of their loyalty. They had a huge Jewish population, which ended up being bad for the Christians here in a moment. But here's what he says. He said, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the what? First and the last. What was on their coin? They're all about being the first. He's like, hold on, I'm the first. Everything begins and ends with me. To the first, the one who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. And what's that referring to? The resurrection. I know your afflictions. There's that word again. I absolutely, fully and completely know your afflictions. The word affliction in Greek gives this picture. Being crushed underneath the weight of a heavy object. Philipsis is the word. And it means where you're just being squeezed down to the point of death. He said, I know that's how it feels to live there. I know that's what your Christianity feels like because of the intense pressure that you have. I know your afflictions and I know your poverty. There are two words in Greek to use for poor. One means you don't have anything extra. You have to work every day for what you own. That's one word for poor. That's not this word. The word that is used here in Greek is you are absolutely destitute to the point of begging just to live. That's this word. Why in the world in such a wealthy city are they so poor? Because of what they stand for. You could be very wealthy in that city, and that was part of the temptation, but they would have had to compromise. These believers who came from the lower class to begin with lost everything under persecution. He said, I know how crushing it is. I know how much you have lost, yet you are rich. Meaning in everything that really matters, you're loaded. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not. What slander? Remember I told you that the Jews were a legitimate uh, religion under the Roman Empire. They didn't have to do the emperor worship. They didn't have to serve in the military. But that was always at the whim of the emperor. So they were always scared of losing their rights. When all of a sudden the Christians started stirring up problems, all the Romans said, hey, your little sect of called Christians is messing things up. The Jews went, I don't even know who they are. And they backed up. I got nothing to do with those people. And then they began to inform in on the Christians. And the Romans came down and began to destroy the Christians. He said, I understand the slander. I understand the lies they're telling. I understand the misconceptions they're promoting. They say they're Jews, but they're not. What do you mean? Either you know you're a Jew or you're not. No. Paul in Romans chapter 8 says a Jew, a true Jew, is a Jew of the heart. Not just nationality. God has two things working with the Jewish people. A national issue and a Jew of the heart. When you start talking about a Jew of the heart, then that merges pretty well with the Christian church as well. And we have one big family. But God also has a work to do with the national. That's why we do the night to honor Israel. 
It's about loving on God's people, right? Well, he said, but they're a synagogue of Satan. You're like, well, that's a pretty strong term. Yeah, you better believe it is. What does he mean? A synagogue means an assembly, a congregation. He says, when they gather, they're helping Satan out by hurting my kids. It's the exact same thing I said to Saul on the road to Damascus. You guys remember his conversion story in Acts chapter 9? Saul, who became Paul the Apostle, was writing to go persecute the Christian church because he thought they were bogus. So he's going out to shut them down, trying to be a good guy for God. Big, huge, bright light knocks him off his horse and God screams down, why are you persecuting me? And Saul goes, who are you? He said, that's the problem. You don't even know who I am. Stop hurting me. You're helping Satan do his work. Knock it off. That's what they're doing. Every time they came together, they were saying that there's some God-honoring congregation. He said, no, you're not. You're helping the enemy out. You're teaming up with him. Stop being a synagogue of Satan. Was it all the Jews? No. There was just some that wanted to distance themselves and get rid of the Christians. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, Jesus said. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Now, Satan wants to tear you down. God realizes that when you make it through it and he sustains you through it, you end up getting tougher and stronger and God's not going to stop that. So notice there's no mention of stopping the suffering. He's like, you got better watch out. You got some suffering coming. You're like, well, do something about it. But what did he say to Peter? Remember, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. You would assume that he said, but I blocked him. He didn't. He said, but I prayed for you. Why in the world would God take away something that strengthens his children? He's not going to stand in the way of that. He has your ultimate safety in his hands. He's not afraid of Satan. But Satan will put them in prison to test them. When they emerge out of that, they will be stronger than ever. And he said what? And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. What does that mean? Is it symbolic? Is it literal? I don't know. Does it matter? No, it just means a limited time. Whatever it is, it's limited. Satan doesn't get to pick how long he persecutes you. I tell you how long you're going to get persecuted. And when I tell you it's over, it's over. He does not get to run a free. No way. Be faithful even to the point of death. Isn't it funny that all our fears end with death? He moves right on past and goes, be faithful to the point of death. Go ahead and die. That's cool. You're like, no, that's not cool. No, I don't want to die. And he keeps moving on. To God, the ultimate weapon is not death. It's just a transition piece. He's like, no, no, no. You need to worry about the second death. Eternal, spiritual death. That's what you need to worry about. This whole physical death, actually, y'all are going to die. Death rate... Currently in America is 100%. The only people that are ever not going to die are what? The ones that are alive when Jesus returns. Those are the only people that are not going to die. Everybody else dies except for two weird guys in the Bible, right? Enoch and Elijah, right? But I'm not so sure what things went easier for them. The point is, that's not the end of it. He said, be faithful even to the point of death. Do we have that type of spirit in us? He said... And I will give you the crown of life. That's the victor's crown, the little wreath from the games. When you run a good race, you get the crown. I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death, the lake of fire. Are people really strong to the point of death? Does that actually happen? 
Yeah, a bunch of martyrs it happened to. As a matter of fact, 50 years after John, one of the most famous martyrs of all time was killed. Guess which city? Smyrna. That city? Who? Polycarp. 86-year-old bishop of the city got hauled out and they would search for him to try to kill him because he was a Christian. He had a dream where his pillow was on fire. He said, you guys, I'm going to have to be burned to death. That's it. I'm all right with that. His friends are like, I'm not all right with that. You got to get out of here. They capture his two servants. They torture him. One servant lets him know where he is. They come to arrest him. They come into his house. He said, I will present a meal before you. Just give me one hour to pray. How intense is that guy? I'll be here. I'm fine. I just got to pray for an hour. You guys have a meal. Go ahead. Kick back. Have some food. I'll be back out. Comes back out afterwards. Says, all right, let's go. This one guy pled with him. He said, just let it go, man. Forget the Jesus thing. Everybody loves you. We all like you. And this is the captain of the police. Let it go. Here's what he said. He said, 80 and six years have I served Christ, said Polycarp, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He's like, no, I'm not doing that. We'll throw you to the beast. So? We'll burn you alive. Listen to his response. You threaten me with fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you don't know the fire that awaits the wicked and the judgment to come and an everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. He's like, go, let's go. I'll burn right now. They lead him out and they go and they stick him on the post. They start putting the wood around it to burn him alive. And they go to tie him up. And he's like, what are you doing? They're like, we're tying you up so you don't run away. He said, if I'm going to stand in the fire, my Lord will give me the strength. You don't have to tie me down. I'll stand here. So he stood there. They loosely bound him for no real reason. And he stood in the fire to burn alive. Now, this is where it gets all into crazy legend, right? Because then, of course, there was a, the fire wouldn't touch him and it was dancing away from him, whatever. Anyway, tradition basically says that he wasn't burning fast enough. So a guy came in and had to knife him and kill him. And then they're like, then the blood came out and put out all the fire. Okay, whatever. And a dove shot out. And you're like, all right. <laughs> that must have felt good to finally get that thing out of there. It's been flying, you know. <laughs> whatever. He died. And the whole time when he was burning, he prayed a prayer. And he said, Lord, thank you for allowing me to be a martyr for your kingdom. May you be glorified. I mean, how incredible is that? Do people like that exist? Yeah. Am I one of them? Not yet. But I'm growing up. I'll learn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are some of us, Lord, that have forsaken. We didn't lose our love for you. We gave it away. We traded it for stuff that doesn't matter. We've traded it for busyness. We've traded it for temptation. And we've traded our love and passion for you to the enemy. We, Lord, have become a synagogue of Satan. We pray right now that as we repent and turn our eyes and our minds towards you, that you would refresh us, that you would replenish us and make us strong. And Lord, in the day that it comes when we are tested and we are persecuted, even as we feel the crushing weight of current life, may we stand up strong underneath it and do you right. 
and be the saints we were built to be. In Jesus' name, amen.